This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Wiser Books. Wiser Books is celebrating 60 years of publishing the very best in occult and esoterica. You can check out their extensive and inspiring range of reading material by going to wiserbooks.com. That's W-E-I-S-E-R books.com. I want to tell you about this very magical, very meaningful event happening here in New York City this coming Saturday, September 14th, and that is the Mystical Menagerie Market. This is a market and a fashion show that are happening at the gorgeous de Kooning Studio, which is right off of Union Square. The evening will begin with Out of the Ash, which is a fashion show collaboration between Cat Coven and I Do Declare that will pay homage to art history from the Renaissance and medieval periods. And then following right after that is an art market that features a collection of vendors whose artwork and products honor the witchy or gothic aesthetic blended with a queer, friendly, feminist edge. The Out of the Ash fashion show begins at 4.15 on Saturday, and the art market is right after that from 5 p.m. to 11 p.m. Entry to the market will be sliding scale between only 3 and $5 per person, but it is cash only, so bring that sweet, sweet cash. And then tickets for the fashion show are available via the Facebook event page for $15. And those who purchase a fashion show ticket will have the opportunity to pre-purchase the pieces that will be shown, as well as receiving first entry into the night market following the show. And what I especially love about all this is that the Mystical Menagerie Market is working with the Third Wave Fund, which is an organization led by and for queer and trans folks of color working for gender justice to end patriarchy, transphobia, homophobia, and misogyny. So go ahead, find them on Instagram at Mystical Menagerie NYC, and there you will find the link to the Facebook event with all the details and ticketing in. Info. Again, go to Instagram and follow at Mystical Menagerie NYC and go to that market and fashion show this Saturday, September 14th. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave.
bonus Witch Wave episode. We officially come back for season three right before Halloween on October 30th. I can't wait to share the new full episodes with you. But in the meantime, I've been missing you so much that I wanted to share the audio of a live event I did in June at Catland, which is Brooklyn's leading occult bookshop. What you're about to hear is a conversation between myself and the writer Jessa Crispin and the artist Jen May. Together, they do a gorgeous tarot deck called the Spolia Tarot, which some of you might be familiar with. But because this was also a release celebration for my new book, Waking the Witch, Reflections on Women, Magic, and Power, you may have heard of it. At the top of the episode, you're also going to hear me read an excerpt from the book. And then I dive into a full conversation with Jessa and Jen about tarot, creativity, art, magic, all of that other good good stuff so have a listen and i can't wait to meet you back here in october hi everybody Thank you guys so much for coming. I hope you're all doing well. I want to thank Catland, first of all, for hosting us. Catland has been so very, very kind and supportive of my work for the last several years, and I'm so happy to be partnering with them. And I'm so grateful to Jessa Crispin and Jen May for making this happen as well and for suggesting that we talk about our work because we have so many different cross-sections and counterpoints and interlinks between everything we do. So why don't I kick things off by just setting the stage here? You might be familiar with Jessa's work and Jen's work, and I'm just going to read little bits from their blurbs. Jess is someone whose writing I've admired for many, many years. Some folks might be familiar with her website, Book Slut, which unfortunately is no longer. Fortunately. Fortunately. For- fortunately. I'm so glad fortunately, it's not happening it's not anymore. Happening. It was wonderful. And Jessa has written just so many incredible essays and articles and some of her books, such as The Dead Ladies Project, The Creative Tarot, which I have brought with me, and I'm going to have her sign it because I'm a Jessica Crispin fan. And of course, Why I Am Not a Feminist, A Feminist Manifesto, which we'll be diving into. And then, of course, the projects that she has with Jen, The Screaming Women Zine and Spolia Tarot. Jen May is an artist whose illustrations and collages have been featured in such outlets as New York Magazine, Catapult, and The Toast. And as I say here, she has collaborated with writer Jessica Crispin on this Folia Tarot and their new zine, Screaming Women. Hooray! Some of you guys might be familiar with my work. For anyone who is new to me, I am the author of this new book, Waking the Witch, Reflections on Women, Magic, and Power. I have a podcast called The Witch Wave. I have emoji for iPhone text messaging called Witch Emoji. <laughs> that gets the applause. Okay, hello. <laughs> and... 
everything that I think the three of us do, we're kind of like a funny little Venn diagram, but a lot of the work that I think the three of us share has to do with this idea of craft. And the word craft is a really kind of wide and woolly word, which of course can mean making things and is also a word that has become associated with magic making, with witchcraft. So we're going to be talking about that word and and having all sorts of fun and uh, playing with its elasticity, hopefully. I wanted to frame this conversation and, and both of these lovely, lovely artists have allowed me to indulge by kicking this conversation off with just a small reading from my new book, which I hope we'll frame the conversation that we're about to have. This is from chapter six, which is called The Dark Arts, Magic Makers and Craft Women. Personally, I will say this. I've discovered that readings are really boring and I much prefer to have conversations with people, but hopefully this will help frame things up. Were the first artists mostly women? So asks a 2013 article on NationalGeographic.com, which reported on a new analysis of handprints in the cave art paintings of eight Paleolithic sites. Some 75% of the prints were made by female hands, the study claimed, and not by male hunters, as was previously assumed. Naturally, I love this idea, and I can't help but wonder what these ancient artists were up to. Archaeologists have suggested that these pictures were made by Cro-Magnon conjurers or shamans who painted images of animals and female nudes to manifest food and fertility. The handprints may have been some sort of added manual magic, or they may have simply been in lieu of a signature, a mark to say, I made this. We may never know the truth, but it's appealing to think about Stone Age art sorceresses because the annoying fact is that for most of human civilization, it has by and large been men who have been allowed to create work for public consumption or who have at least gotten most of the accolades. And because what male artists made was often images of women, they could dictate what was considered desirable or repugnant, both aesthetically and behaviorally in regard to the opposite sex. This is particularly clear when we delve into the topic of witches in art. As we've seen, it was men like Albrecht Dürer and Hans Baldung Green who helped visually define witches with their drawings of naked ladies and other devilish ne'er-do-wells in the late 15th and early 16th centuries. Other prominent witch depictors through the ages include Franz Franken the Younger, Salvatore Rosa, Henry Fuseli, Francisco Goya, and John William Waterhouse. Though the artist's actual belief in witches fluctuated over the centuries in accordance with society's shifting attitudes, their visual vocabulary remained much the same. Witches were shown as either old and horrid or young and fatally attractive. At first blush, it seems that the witch undergoes some redemption in the 20th century. Several male surrealists became inspired by the femme sorciere archetype, thanks in large part to Michelet's aforementioned 1862 book, La Sorciere, and the 1922 Swedish-Danish silent film it inspired, Hexen. 
The idea of the free-spirited, intuitive, bewitching woman inspired surrealist painters, including Max Ernst, Paul Delvaux, Victor Browner, and Kurt Seligman. These men made several witch-themed works, many of which were meant to be enchanting and erotic in equal measure. But even with their supposedly more positive artistic spin on women with special powers, many of these witch pictures are faceless or nude, and often both. Now, I must say, as an art nerd in general, and a witch-obsessed one at that, I adore many of the works of these mesmerizing men, as objectifying or politically incorrect as they may be by today's standards. But an interesting thing happens when women wield the creative wands, whether in the form of pencils or paintbrushes, they materialize their own magic and become witches of a sort themselves. So I wanted to read that because so much of the artwork that I really love is turning out to have been pioneered by female makers and some of whom were steeped in occult ideas or spiritualist ideas. The one that comes to mind is, I don't know if either of you got to see the Hilma off Clint show that was at the Guggenheim recently. Did any of you guys see that show? Yeah, it was beautiful, wasn't it? And it apparently broke the Guggenheim's records. It is the most attended show in Guggenheim's history. And for me, it kind of lives across all these different vectors. You know, the story of abstract art actually being, I don't know if created is the right word, but happening earlier than Kandinsky and by a woman, but also the fact that she was using all of these spiritual images and, you know, she was actually doing seances. This was part of her work and it was in kind of the the corpus of her practice. So just to kick things off, have you guys been thinking any differently about gender and magic and creativity these days, given the, I don't know if renewed interest or the first interest in some cases that seems to be happening right now in the mainstream? I guess the Off Clint show at the Guggenheim Well, it pissed me off a little bit, the way that it was framed as her being kind of a lunatic, the way that they talked about in the in the wall text, her spiritualist practice was if it was kind of adorable. And there wasn't any sort of reference of what the imagery meant. So there was, you know, if you have sort of been grounded in esoteric studies, if you have studied these sort of magical cults, if you know Christian iconography, then you get a lot out of that work. And if not, it just looks like abstraction, but it's not abstraction. She wasn't trying to be abstract. She was taking visual dictation. So I find that I don't know if it's because I don't know which aspect of it. I don't know if it's because she's a woman or because she, if she's because she's spiritual, both of these things tend to be denigrated in our culture, but it sort of culminated in this sort of like, aren't, isn't it cute? (laughs) Um, I mean, she did some pretty paintings and here they are and we don't know what they mean. They're probably crazy. And I was very frustrated going through that show because I was overhearing people saying, I wish I knew what this meant. 
And I found that frustrating that the institution didn't take the work seriously enough uh, in order to try to explain it or give it context. Mm -hmm. But I find that that's typical of these kinds of pursuits, particularly occult, mystical, spiritual work in general. Yeah, it does seem as if like there have been inroads that have been made in the last like 10 or 15 years. We're starting to see some academic courses and even some like full degrees that you can now get in Western esotericism and things like that. But it is very, very slow for sure. For sure. Jen, did you get to see the Hilma Ofklin show? I did see it. I love her work. I think to what Jessa was talking about in thinking about it afterwards, there's this weird thing where when it's in a museum, it's seen as just art, um, like this untouchable high art when she made it to kind of have this purpose as a tool more than art, a tool to tell a story or something. Absolutely. And to your point, I think so much of this kind of creative work is meant to be interacted with. It's meant to be dialogued with, whether that's to enter into a meditative space or a transcendent kind of liminal space when you're engaging with it. And sometimes it's actual objects that were meant to be used as either ritual tools or spellcraft tools. It's that same feeling I kind of get when I'm going through any museum, really, and you're looking at, you know, the magical ceremonial masks of some culture or beautiful staves or things that you know were meant to be these active ritual objects. But then you have that real dividing line between you and the object. You brought up tarot, and I think that's a really great kind of connective tissue also between a lot of the work that we've been thinking about lately. In this chapter, I should have said, so I write about five artists. I write about Georgiana Houghton, Hilma of Clint, Pamela Coleman-Smith, who we'll be talking about quite a bit, and then Leonora Carrington and Remedios Varro. And all of these artists, through my mind, are kind of art witches, which is what I call them in the book. I don't know that they would have called themselves that, but to me, they seem to be engaging in some sort of practice where their art, to your point, isn't just about making a pretty picture. It's supposed to be elevating your frequency somehow, or it's supposed to be something that you are engaging with in this much more, I don't know, divine, interactive way. So let's talk Talk about tarot. Both of you have created this gorgeous deck. I'm, this is going to be a little hard to see, and certainly anyone who's listening to this recording later, I will describe it. This is the moon card. Actually, Jen, will you describe it <laughs> since you have created this beautiful card? What I, are the images? I mean, it's weird to describe something that I made. I know, and I'll um, do it anyway. <laughs> There's a black background. Yes. Uh, there is a full moon. It's blue. Mm -hmm. There is this crescent moon above the, is it Hecate? How do you pronounce it correctly? Hecate. Hecate. I've heard Hecate, Hecate, Hecate. Yeah. I yeah. don't know what it's it is. It's Greek to no me. It's um, so there's a crescent moon. There's a Hecate, three triple head, triple goddess. There is a snake kind of wrapping around her there's some night blooming jasmine moonflower and then there are these hands kind of as a reference to a crossroads beautiful and the reason that I really wanted you to talk about it, though, is for anyone who's familiar with the moon card in some other tarot decks and I'm just going to focus on 
what would be called the Rider Weight deck. A lot of us call it the Smith Weight deck now because it was Pamela Coleman Smith who in- reinterpreted a lot of those images and really, you know, made them her own and illustrated them when the deck came out in 1910. But this looks different than the moon card that a lot of us are familiar with in the Smith weight deck. Mm-hmm. So when you guys were talking about creating a deck together, and Jessa, why don't we start with you? Why, why did you even decide to make a new deck in the first place? There are lots of decks out there. I think yours is exquisite. But why did you think something was missing? What did you want to add to this dialogue? Um, well, I was drunk in Romania. <laughs> <laughs> And, that uh, is how all stories should begin. <laughs> and I emailed Jen. I was like, hey, do you want to make a deck with me? And she's like, yeah. So that was <laughs> that's the origin story. Um, Perfect. The yeah. end. So it wasn't like we, you know, assessed the history of the tarot and said, ah, oh, we see this giant gap that needs filling. I guess both of us just thought it would be an interesting project to do. And that's it. We were interested in doing it and we naively thought it would take about a year yeah or six months six months we're like oh yeah we'll knock it out uh it took (laughs) us three years um four actually to make it an object yeah it was a daily thing for about four years and we didn't even have like you said we weren't like oh we need to add to this conversation we didn't even really have a plan no at all no okay okay (laughs) we didn't know if we were gonna like actually print you know we were making it but we didn't know if we were gonna print it it really wasn't until it was done that we're like oh i guess we have to do something with this we have all these we have all these collages we should do something with taking up a lot of space in chen's studio okay if i may (laughs) that's that's lovely. <laughs> but Jessa, I mean, you mm-hmm. wrote an entire book yeah. called The Creative Tarot. Mm-hmm. So let us not underplay like your immense amount of knowledge and thought that you've put into this topic. So how did you get interested in tarot in the first place? I was freaking out uh, and uh, annoying the shit out of my friend. Uh, and she took me to her tarot card reader or she, because otherwise she was going to murder me. Um, when was this? Uh, I was 27, beginning stages of Saturn Return. Yeah. Uh, obviously. And I had had a deck when I was younger, uh, when I was 16, because uh, I had dyed my hair black. So it's, you know, it comes with the hair dye kit. It's true. It's true. Manic panic gives you your free deck. Yeah. Yep. And so I didn't really take it seriously until I had the reading at 27. And uh, it was very helpful. But it was also very unusual. She was, well, she still is a Jungian tarot card reader slash uh, shoe designer. And I still go get readings with her every once in a while. But uh, Where she's is she amazing. Uh, Hell's Kitchen. Oh, excellent. She's yeah. here. She's from the Bronx. Yeah. And Jen, were you interested in tarot before you and Jessa started talking to each other? Or did um, she bring it into your life? Well, yeah, I had been interested in it, but not in a very serious studious way i had a tarot deck it's the um b nettles the mountain what's it called mountain what is it called black she was a feminist photographer photographer. and it's all black and white yeah Yeah. and some of them are the most beautiful images you've ever seen and some are just like a guy standing there yeah (laughs) holding a a stick it's very 70s isn't it it's very 70s and the back design is not my favorite and it's like a tribal it's tattoo. It's really looking bad. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when I saw some of the images from it, I loved it. And so I bought it. But I dyed my hair when I was 14 and it I didn't 
it didn't come with a dildo. Oh my god, <laughs> you were ripped off. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So I didn't actually get one until I was like in my twenties, mm-hmm. and I, you know, knew about it. I would pull a daily card and stuff, but you know, nothing compared to Jessa. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jessa's knowledge. Well, speaking of Jessa's knowledge, one thing I love about your approach to tarot is you really draw on your literary background. And um, in your book, especially, which I love, The Creative Tarot, I I really, you know, not just because she's sitting here, I really recommend this to anyone who's interested in tarot because not only does she go through, do you go through every card one by one, but at the end of each, and you're such a beautiful writer, but at the end of each, there are also works of art, literary suggestions, books, um, music that you think kind of resonate with every card. So what made you decide to include that? It it also sounds quite Jungian, if I may. Well, that was because of uh, this woman that I went to who would just sort of rattle off at the end of our sessions book recommendations. um, And they were always very helpful. So I just was like, well, I'll just steal her bit um, (laughs) and uh, not credit her. So that's Perfect. Hopefully she will not ever listen to this. Uh, Well, I did dedicate the book to her. So (laughs) damn it, Jessa. And, you know, your deck is different not only in how it looks, but you have extra cards. Mm -hmm. So the typical tarot deck has 78 cards and yours has 94. Okay. And can you share with the good people what the extra cards are and why you decided to include them? They're the Zodiac and the Elements, but you can share why we chose to include them. Uh, Because we were feeling really, really ambitious uh, (laughs) when, when I was in Romania. Part of the reason is that before the writer Wade Smith uh, came out, there was a lot more variety in the decks. So some of them had, for example, like two emperors, a Western emperor and an Eastern emperor. Some of them had uh, the devil and the devil's house. Some of them had zodiac cards. Some of them had elements. So uh, some of them had a pope and a popess. So it was just a lot more variety. And then it became very standardized by the writer Wade Smith. So we just sort of wanted to bring some of the uh, variety back. Yeah. And do those cards, are they kind of self-explanatory in terms of their meaning? So if someone were to get a fire card or the card of Scorpio, how would you have people interpret them? Well, it depends, right, on... A person's astrological knowledge. I I know a lot of people just take them out of the deck if they're not into astrology, but they are as complicated to read as the major arcana in the sense of, you know, if you do pull Scorpio, is it referring to the fact that what Scorpio rules in your chart? Is it referring to the time of the year? Is it refer? And so it's, it's about the meaning that you bring into it and the knowledge yeah. that you bring into it. Yeah. It's for <laughs> optional use. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. And was it fun for you to get to sort of create new images for suits, I suppose, that wouldn't normally be in a tarot deck? Like, was that more liberating or was it um, easier? I don't know if easier is the right word um, well, for you to work the on. Scorpio the Scorpio card was, <laughs> was so cursed. hard. <laughs> yeah. That, was, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I'm a Scorpio and I couldn't do it. And I didn't do it until I finished every other one, glued them down and scanned every other card it was like haunting, <laughs> it, yeah. but I think you know the one we. It seems right now. They were 
I, I, I approached them in the same way. Yeah. So the way that we did work on it was Jessa would write me a really long email about each <laughs> card. And then she didn't just send you the book. This came <laughs> while we were in the middle of making oh, it. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. We were making I thought this it came for out so earlier. long. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Jessa would write a long thing that she would include in associations, like you're mentioning literary movies. We would make a lot of jokes. <laughs> And then a lot of cat pictures going back and forth. Oh, is this it? Like, yeah, <laughs> the hanged man would be a kitten falling from a tree or whatever. It's and it was just like, oh, done. We're done. It's beautiful. Yeah. And then eventually, I would try to do it, and then I would send Jessa a picture. It wasn't just like, okay, this is it. Then I would send her a picture and be like, what do you? Does this make? Does this work? Sometimes it did. Sometimes yeah. it didn't. Um, and we would kind of go back and forth, and I wouldn't get glued down until we were like that's Libra. Yeah, I, I do want to point out that that all the collages are on paper because I think people think that a lot of them are digital, but she spent hours and hours and hours at Kinko's uh, running off uh, images and changing the, the colors and everything. Like everything is by hand. Yeah, uh, it's, it's done the most like difficult, time-consuming way possible. Super analog. analog. <laughs> yeah. Excellent, excellent. I'm curious how you both use tarot in your creative practices, or do you? Do you use it to help yourself write, Jessa, or do you use it when you're feeling stuck as an artist, or or is that not quite your relationship with it? I only did, like, last week. <laughs> <laughs> and why? Why did you suddenly well, decide no, to? Well, I was just like, I don't know, I felt stuck, and I was like, well... Maybe I'll check out Jess's book. <laughs> she finally convinced you. <laughs> well, I mean, I read it, but I don't like usually do that kind of thing. Yeah. But I tried it and I, you know, but I usually use it just kind of like pull a card or occasionally do like a spread, but not specifically related to what I'm like a project or what I'm trying to figure out. I still do a daily card a day. And I'm actually right now I'm horrifically behind and stuck on a project and I'm actively ignoring my tarot deck because I don't even want to know. Like, I don't want to know. I don't want it. I don't want bad news. So I'm just gonna just gonna pretend like it's not there for yeah. me. So yeah. 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 That makes a lot of sense. And yourself? What's your like regular practice? So I like oracle cards these days. I love tarot, but because I've been working with it for such a long time, I've needed to shake it up with kind of new symbols. So lately, because my head is so whirly-swirly with all kinds of stuff, there's a deck called the Minimalist Oracle. Do you know that one? Mm -hmm. It's basically these very simple, bold, it almost looks like um, like kindergarten kind of colors and bold abstract shapes. And then there will just be a word on it like vertical. And that's been freeing me up a little bit more because to your point, Jessa, like tarot sometimes freaks me out. Like it tells me stuff I don't want to know. Yeah, yeah. And I can like sometimes err on the side of being a little bit extra plannery, controlly, type A-ish. I'm working on it. So for tarot to tell me something that I don't want to hear, like absolutely stresses me out. And it will tell you. It will absolutely tell you. Yeah. Yeah. The last time I asked about my book project, I got the devil and I just, I'm not doing it. I'm not asking it. <laughs> 
Yes, that's a tricky one. (laughs) And Chessa, you read for people too, right? You have clients. Yeah. And is it mostly artists and creative people who come to you for projects? Yeah. And the recently broken up with. Yeah, that's my (laughs) that's my base. Your wheelhouse. Yeah, it's been interesting because I've been speaking to a lot of people who are using tarot not just for life advice, if you will, or insights, but also to help them literally like make decisions in their creative work. On the podcast, I had Joshua Conkle, who's one of the writers on Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. And he said when he's stuck doing screenwriting, like trying to decide what a character is going to do he'll like pull a card or do a spread and that helps him decide what the plot points are going to be and stuff so mm-hmm. I find that really interesting too that kind of overlap and how you can use it in all these different artful interesting ways for sure do you ever do that kind of thing or it's more a pull you'll do for either yourself or clients Jessa where it's more about their lives as opposed to decisions they should make in their work. No, I have a specific reading set up for creative block and that's probably about 50% of my clients for that specific reading. And, you know, obviously life stuff gets in there and we end up talking about a lot of things that aren't the creative project, but the idea is to focus it on why is this being such a problem at the moment? Yeah. Yeah. So, The word spolia, I learned from your website, it's repurposing rubble to build new things, right? Mm -hmm. It's an Italian term and it's architectural. Mm -hmm. And so I love that idea when it comes to collage because you're taking these disparate elements, these like rough elements and refining them in a very alchemical way into something new and golden and beautiful. What is it about collage for you, Jen, that makes you so attracted to it or that has been kind of, I know you will probably, you work in other mediums too, but it seems like collage is something you keep coming back to. Why is that? I'm not sure. I guess I, (laughs) I think it's because of sort of what you're saying. I like to use these other pieces of things that already exist to make something new with this. It was finding very specific images in like my personal artwork you know, it'll just be like this little color or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. I find I like what I get out of doing that and using little ephemera or stuff that has already had an existence yeah. to make something Do you new. have a big collection of like old magazines and books and yeah, stuff? Yeah, I have a filing cabinet that has like folders that'll say like skeletons. candles but it's also like my desk is just crazy of paper it's not as organized as it sounds or like if I get an envelope in the mail and it's a good color I'll save that you know stuff yeah exactly exactly so I have been thinking a lot about kind of the blur between art and creativity and people ask me a lot like do you think art is magic do you think magic is art And rather than responding, I'm curious what you guys think. Do you feel like there's some kind of a magical or spiritual element to creativity in general? Or do you think that's just a way we trick ourselves so we can make new things? I mean, some of it can be, right? I mean, every once in a while you'll go see a play or a concert or something and it's church, you know, like it's an elevation rather than just an ego project. You know, everyone's been trapped in somebody's ego project and uh, you're trying to inch your way to the exit and you just can't get there. Um, (laughs) But so I think it can be, but it's not necessarily. There's definitely 
the possibility of transcendence, but a lot of it is just mud. Not that there's anything wrong with mud. To classify all art is magic, I think. I don't think that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree completely with this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Have have either of you seen anything recently that gave you that transcendent feeling or made anything recently that you felt like it was coming from another place and not just your little noggin? I go to this weekly thing in Chicago every time I'm in Chicago. It's called Paper Machete and it's a variety show and it is absolutely church. Everybody is there, both the audience and the creators, to make something for two hours that is uh, life-affirming. Mm -hmm. And I, I go half the time just to try to figure out how the fuck they do it because it's so different from every other performance space that I've been in where the audience walks in with this intention and they've been really good at cultivating this very specific audience that they are in it. And if you're not in it, if you're just like a tourist, they will throw you the fuck out. Like if you're disruptive, if you're not respectful, you're gone. And yeah. I love that. <laughs> um, I think creating that is so hard, particularly when we're in the space of like, well, we have to be open to everybody and we have to be accessible. We have to archive everything. We have to document everything. And part of what they do is a refusal to document. They don't distribute the shows outside of that, that room. Uh, you have to be there and they're very protective. And it makes me think a lot about what we're doing in our culture of just wide openness. I think we've taken that as a, as a pure good in a way that it, and it's not actually. Yeah. Hearing you talk about that makes me think of like the things that happen in this room, because for those of you who haven't been here at Catland, there's ritual happening in this very room all the time. And the whole witches of Instagram thing that's happening, which I'm sure we all have a lot of opinions about, this idea of like sharing every piece of magic you do or every altar picture, I actually have mixed feelings about it because on the one hand, I feel like there's so much shame and danger that's still baked into practicing witchcraft. And so the more out in the open people can be about it, I think it actually makes some of us safer because we're not like slaughtering babies or, you know, like we're showing like this is actually what it looks like and we're finding other people and building these beautiful bridges. And I think that's important. On the other hand, there is parts of my practice that I will never share with anyone. It is very sacred. It is very private. And to your point, I think the connection between like performance and ritual, because ritual is a performance, even if you're just performing for yourself or for spirit or whatever word you want to choose there, like it still has a performative element to it. And there's, I think, magic in performance and the live experience and being present that you can't really replicate and you certainly can't record and sharing it cheapens it and takes some of the mystery out of it for sure. I don't know. When you're working, Jen, do you feel like you have to have some kind of ritualized liminal space around you? Like, would you ever show someone your working process and open that up to public consumption? Or um, does that feel very private and personal? I mean, I value privacy in general, yeah. but it's not super magical. When I'm making stuff, I have a desk. It's completely covered in paper. And I usually light a candle. And I usually listen to the same songs. But but it's not magical at all. <laughs> okay. 
but it doesn't feel magical to me. <laughs> okay. I mean, there is a ritual in the way I go about it, but it's, it doesn't feel super elevated from my... Your heart doesn't start racing and you're not... No. <laughs> the wind doesn't well, blow I don't, in your hair. Yeah, well, well, like you were asking if anything we've made has felt like this elevated art. I don't ever feel that about stuff that I make. Have you experienced any artwork recently that's made you feel like maybe there was magic happening or... Well, I just saw Bikini Kill. So, yeah. That's an excellent answer. Yeah. Heavy coven energy right there collected in a, a feminist cauldron, if you will. I want to bring up that word feminism because I know it's a word that people have a lot of feelings about. Jessa, you've literally written a book called Why I Am Not a Feminist. For those who might not be familiar with that piece of yours, can you explain why that word rankles maybe that's too polite of a word why it really pisses you off um i don't know that it pisses me off so much as it just holds no meaning anymore because it's been used in all these different ways so pro-lifers now call themselves feminist you know cheryl sandberg and hillary clinton call themselves feminist when i say feminist it no longer because it's been used in all these different ways conveys meaning to whoever I'm addressing. So to label myself in that way in a word that is empty just seems uh, useless. So I wanted to write this book about how that word became empty and how we can pursue these things by figuring out what we actually believe in value. Because I find that most feminism, in the way that I find a lot of witchcraft stuff, completely devoid of any sort of definition or meaning. People are like, I'm a witch because I did a thing. And, and you know, I put a crystal on a candle. I'm a witch. And I took a picture. And I just don't think that's that's anything. So I want to get back to what does anybody actually believe? What values do you live your life by? What do you actually put blood and sweat into mm -hmm. rather than this is the t-shirt that I happen to be wearing today? Yeah. So, yeah. Do you think of yourself as a feminist or a feminist artist? I mean, I agree with what Jess is saying, and I understand that, and I really liked her book. But when I was younger, I was really like, I'm a feminist artist. But no one was saying that then, mm -hmm. <laughs> and it wasn't cool at all. Sure, I guess still am. I, wouldn't, I don't know if you would get that from what I'm making, but it is still something I care about. But mm -hmm. I also feel like, like Jessa was saying at this point, I don't know what that is supposed to mean. And while you were talking, I felt the same way. And you kind of talk about in your book how the word witch means almost anything mm -hmm. at this point. I think I have a different perspective than you guys do on this stuff. Even if it might annoy me in certain moments that someone's using the word and I think they're a lame person or whatever, like... For me, I just feel like there are so many different points of entry for feminism or for witchcraft. And, I, and I've, I've grappled with this a lot, right? Because I've been a practitioner my whole life, pretty much. Like when I call myself a witch or I call myself a feminist, like these are things that are fundamental to who I am. And I, I believe I have put in the blood and the sweat and the tears and the reading and the research and the experience to be able to like lay claim to those words. On the other hand, if like some 18 year old goes to Urban Outfitters and buys a shirt that says witch or feminist, I don't know where that's going to lead 
them. Like that could be just the little portal that they enter that makes them feel like really emboldened and then like takes them on a wider path. Like I know so many people who got into witchcraft because they were really into Dungeons and Dragons or they liked a Led Zeppelin album cover. And I'm like, who am I to judge? Like you got to start somewhere. You know what I mean? Even if some people are wearing the T-shirt and then they throw the T-shirt away okay, but some people aren't. And some people then like wear that shirt and they feel a little braver. And then they're like fucking voting and marching in the streets and all those things. So I don't know. I'm a real the more the merrier kind of person in general. But I also see the downside of that, especially when it comes into capitalism, because you have people who are calling themselves a witch. But to your point, Jessa, they're not actually living what I think are the values of the witch, which are being like ecologically responsible and protecting the most vulnerable among us and, you know, casting a wide circle of like compassion and love. They just want to say they're a witch because they feel cool or because they're trying to like empower themselves, but then they're not actually using that empowerment to then like help everybody else, which I think is why we're all fucking here. <sighs> so I, I totally take your point, but I don't know. I kind of can see like other gradations between it. When you see that shirt that says witch or that feminist shirt or whatever it is, is it also that it bugs you that like a corporation is profiting off of it? Is that part of it too? I don't, I don't, you know, if somebody comes up to me and is wearing a feminist t-shirt, it's not like I punch them in the face. (laughs) Um, I, I don't have any problems with people who need the word in order to sort of put a coherent label on their ideology, as long as there's an ideology. But if somebody's buying the $375 t-shirt, then I think that we should talk about the issues with uh, the fashion industry co-opting the feminist label when uh, fashion has been at odds with feminism from its very beginning. Yes. Um, And we should have a conversation about sweatshops and children making these clothing, you know, and the thing with the witch, you know, every time I go to the bookstore and there's a new book about witches, I open it and it's it's always like a spell on how to ask for that raise. And I'm just like, Oh, okay. So we're being witches now to be better at capitalism. Like I'm so so excited about it. So yeah, I just feel like there's been so much conversation about the label and not the content of, uh, of what any of this actually means. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about zines because you guys have this new zine out. It's called Screaming Women, which is a really badass name. First and foremost, like what made you guys decide to do this specific project? And can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, Jessa's writing a novel. So that's part of what's in our zine where there's part of the novel in parts. Mm -hmm. And Jessa wanted me to do artwork for the novel. But we decided to put it out as a zine. <laughs> she she had uh, had the idea for wanting to do a zine called Screaming Women. And then I went through an experience with the publishing industry where I wanted to write this novel and I didn't want anybody to touch it. So uh, I just wanted a clean experience and just sort of have something that was just mine for a while and nobody got to change the story about it. Uh, Yeah. So I said, why don't we just do combine the two projects? And so, yeah, that's how that's how it happened. Yeah. We decided to make it the novel inside this other thing, even though it's kind of confusing because then it has two names and no one really knows what it is yeah the we we were talking earlier about how do we as creative people and artists 
try to create outside of capitalism and then we decided just make things nobody wants to <laughs> which is what Jessa and I do it's our specialty like, so we're really amazing at it actually and also don't put the title on the front That's yeah, a good yeah just point. make it the yes. mysterious unsellable make object. sure that you can tell you would have no way to know that they're related <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yes yes and then it's nice because it's a zine it's fairly inexpensive these are like really long so we had to make them a little bit more expensive but you can just hand one to someone or like you know they're easy to distribute it happens very quickly the second one I stapled like a few days ago and then we can do other stuff with it too if we want yeah can can you tell us about the novel Jessa it's called The Spencer at the End of the World, um, which now I think it should be A Spencer at the End of the World. And now I'm really fucked up by the fact that we got it wrong. Um, <laughs> continuing our process of just of absolute poverty. No and one else in. will notice. Um, <laughs> it's basically how do you live a life in an irredeemable world? That's the that's the and, and from what I read of it so far, and definitely correct me, but it feels a little speculative fiction or sci-fi or post-apocalyptic. Do you want to describe it in a better way than I can? Um, my friend Christopher refers to it as a dystopian utopian dystopia. So um, that seems right. Yeah. Yes. And it's really cool. And from what I've read so far, it has a female protagonist who I believe is a spinster. And the system in the world that they live in has kind of flagged her as a spinster. Like that is a label that she carries in the world. She's not procreating. Yeah. Yes. 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 What is it about a spinster character that you wanted to spend time with or that you wanted to bring into the world? I was living in the suburbs. And so that was interesting because I was surrounded by married couples with children and you become a problem for them to fix. And it's uh, horrifying. And so I, I left the suburbs, but that feeling didn't quite ever go away. But, you know, all of my favorite American writers and, and British writers were obsessed with the spinster as a character. Uh, w. Somerset Mom, Henry James, Nathaniel Hawthorne. They, they loved this character and gave her her dignity, whereas most sort of mainstream non-queer writers look at her as an object of pity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still think like in this era of reclaiming the word spinster, which according to the book spinster uh, <laughs> just means like you can't choose choose you just there are just so many men throwing themselves at you (laughs) how could you possibly choose one to marry and I'm like that's not really how it works when you're single and you haven't been touched in two years but um (laughs) uh, so I wanted yeah I just sort of wanted to uh to write a character like that in a, in a kind of Jamesian way. Yeah. It's interesting to hear you talk about it in that context. When I was writing about the witch, there's a chapter in here called Body Monsters. And it's about how witches, 
they kind of operate outside of family structures. They're often not married in fairy tales and in all kinds of stories. Even during a lot of the the witch craze, a lot of the women who were killed, it was because they were either widows, as you probably know, or they didn't have enough kids or they didn't have any kids. And that really resonates with me as a 38-year-old woman. I'm very happily married. We've chosen not to have children. And because of that, I'm sometimes an object of curiosity or pity. Luckily, a lot of our friends and family are pretty great about it. But Mm -hmm. still, and often it's weird acquaintances or people you meet for the first time that just assume that you have kids and you have to have that awkward little dance that you do. And why I love witches so much is that they operate outside of those systems and they don't, you know, it's it's one of the few female archetypes, if not the only female or feminine archetype, where she gets power under herself. It's not that she has power because she's taking care of a kid or she's someone's wife or anything like that. You know, she just has her own kind of self-definition. Mm-hmm. So spinsters really resonate with me too. I can't wait to read more of it. And then kind of winding things down here... I was thinking a lot about zines because I I made some when I was growing up in the 90s and it got me thinking about like um, the concept of the book of shadows, which for those who might not be familiar with that term, it's this idea that as a witch, you have your individual almost like magical journal where you put in your own kind of spells. It could be different dreams you have. It could be certain herbs that, you know, you've discovered. It could be your own rituals that you're writing. One of the people who popularized it is Gerald Gardner, the alleged father. Well, he definitely was one of the the people who started the religion that came to be called Wicca, um, though he didn't really use that word about it. And a lot of those rituals that turned into modern witchcraft were spolia. They were like taken from, you know, kind of magical secret societies like the Order of the Golden Dawn, or they were taken from like Aleister Crowley's writings and and all of this other stuff, this kind of mishmashy thing. So I was just wondering, like, when you guys are working on a zine, does it feel like you're doing that kind of like DIY, almost like rogue magician kind of process at all? Has it felt that way? It's more like um, uh, Jen and I are having a, a conversation in a secret language that nobody else understands. Even in the sense of like I was uh, rewatching The Shining because I was trying to write about it for something else. Um, and I watched it like five times in a row. And then she gives me a copy of Screaming Women and The Shining is on an image from The Shining is on the cover. So it's like we have a weird hookup that I like a lot. And I think that one of the reasons I like collaborating with her so much is it does feel like this private thing that we sort of reluctantly bring into the world sometimes, but she's just fun to work with. (laughs) And I love her very much. And I like that I'm embarrassing her right now. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, I don't feel like a magician when I'm making them, but like Jessa said, it's, fun to have this thing where I get to read it first and then it's not really like illustrating it it's kind of just like adding another layer to it yeah which I'm not sure if it's like distracting or annoying for people (laughs) who are actually reading it but it's um, awesome just kind of coming together and yeah bookending it with other just imagery and then 
Yeah, we get to include these secret things. Like in the second one, we get the actor James Mason was really into cats and wrote a book about cats. And we included a picture of Flower Face's cat at the back. So that's what that is. Yeah. <laughs> and it's uh, nice to have a place to put something like that. Like having a shared interest in Flower Face, we can be like, oh, we'll put it in the zine. You know? So that's awesome. Hearing you talk about it, it reminds me of the notion of the third mind that lots of artists, um, was it Burroughs and Geisen who came up with that term, third mind, which is the idea that, you know, between two creative collaborators, that this alchemy happens where, you know, you kind of forget who started something and who began it and the work kind of becomes this third other thing that transcends either of the makers. And I think it's a really beautiful notion and it's such a fortunate thing that you guys found each other (laughs) what a lovely note to end on (laughs) well thank you guys so much for doing this thank you for sharing your work thank you guys all for being here tonight and talking to us about magic and creativity please stick around if you have more questions and we'll be hanging out for a while thanks guys That's it for the show. Thank you again to Jessa Crispin and Jen May for sharing their creative magic with me. And thank you to Brooklyn's Catland Books for hosting us. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and you just might make it on the witch wire. The Witch Wave is produced and recorded by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was edited by Rachel Jacobs. Thank you, Rachel. And she also recorded it live. And I did some editing on this episode myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman and Chiquita Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes of The Witch Wave on our website, witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us lots and lots and lots and lots of sparkly stars. It really makes a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchWavePod. And you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. And please consider buying my book, Waking the Witch, which is out now. I've got a ton of events and appearances coming up throughout the fall, so check out my events page on pamgrossman.com slash events. I hope to see you on the road and in the skies. I'll see you back here for season three on October 30th. And as always, I thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave. (laughs) 